Welcome to the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Nutera Ventures, your guide to healthcare investing. Join us as we explore interviews with pioneering entrepreneurs, investors, and innovative leaders, helping you spark innovation in the world of venture capital investing. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Clues from the Health Tech Invest podcast. I've got an exciting guest for you all today. His name is Bill Reichert, and he is a general partner at Pegasus Tech Ventures a chief evangelist officer at Startup World Cup, and he is also the co-director of the Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs Accelerator, powered by Pegasus Tech Ventures. X, that's a mouthful. Bill, how are you? How are you doing today? Thanks a lot, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me here and delighted to have the opportunity to talk about health tech. Okay, great. So, Bill, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate your time. You've always been a generalist venture capital investor. Surely dabbled in the health tech space and are obviously doubling down in partnership with our venture capital activities. So we really appreciate that. Could you give our listeners a little bit of more context of maybe your first healthcare deal or what kind of got you into the healthcare space? Yes. Yeah, so what got me into the healthcare space, health tech space, long ago and far away. I grew up in a family of doctors. My great-grandfather came over from Germany, and he was a doctor. And my grandfather, he was a doctor. My dad, he was a doctor. My older brother, he is a doctor. So I grew up in the medical world. I assumed I would be a doctor. When I went off to college, one of the things that I just got fascinated by was genetics. And I was entering when I was in college a long time ago, but genetics was booming. It was a very hot topic. We had just figured out how to manipulate genes. My professor at Harvard went on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. And I was just very enthused about the science of medicine. Again, partly thanks to my background. But fast forward, the life took a different track, wound up being a software entrepreneur. But then after my second company went public, I crossed over to the venture capital space joined with Guy Kawasaki and a few other people, and we launched a new kind of venture capital firm here in Silicon Valley. We called it Garage Technology Ventures. And the big idea behind Garage was we wanted to be open to whatever innovation could make a dent in the universe, wherever it was on the planet. And so by necessity, we had to be in the healthcare, health tech, biotech space. So we, starting from our launch of Garage, I had to get back up to speed in terms of what was going on in biotech and health tech. And so we made a few investments in that space, one of which was a very interesting company in the early days of angiogenesis. And so we were working on a company that had developed a very interesting therapy in that space, wound up getting acquired. That was my first success story in the health tech sector, broadly defined. So I have, I hate to say dabbled, but I have been <laughs> engaged in the whole broad space of health tech innovation over the last 20 plus years since I became a venture capitalist. Very cool. Very cool. What's changed? I think obviously a lot of capital has entered the digital health space over the last seven or eight years, and, and there's a lot of buzz about digital health. What areas of digital health or healthcare in general are you most excited about at this point in time? Yeah. So in terms of, from my perspective, what has evolved, what has changed, it's the more things change, the more things stay the same. We've seen so many interesting sure. scientific breakthroughs. And again, 
I got in, I got back into it around the time of the Human Genome Project. And so there was this massive investment into biotech primarily way back then. And then there was this whole wave of thinking around the healthcare system and evolution in the healthcare system into value-based care and all of these transitions that have gone on in the U.S. healthcare system that have changed the way the possibilities and opportunities for the delivery of healthcare, while at the same time we're seeing all these technologies that are making promises for the types of therapies or other types of outcome-improving technologies, such as remote patient monitoring and other medical devices that have exploded onto the scene, which create this enormous promise and a lot of enthusiasm. And then we just discover that it still takes so long for things (laughs) to happen. And so that is, again, that's, we've always known this. We've always hoped that it might get better. And it just keeps on taking a long time for things to happen in the health tech, biotech, healthcare space. So you've made so many impressive investments over the years and you've seen so many different industries. What is it about healthcare that makes it so slow moving when it comes to the adoption you were just alluding to? What are your observations? One is that, and this is true across all technology and across all science, is that as soon as we see the possibility, we become overly optimistic about the time frame in which things can be adopted. And this is this has always been true. We've always been overly optimistic about technology back to flying cars, right? Or whatever. Or you can talk about fusion, you could talk about AI, you can talk about the internet boom. Every new technology that has broken onto the scene, we have wound up being overly optimistic about the pace of adoption. So it's not entirely unique. To, to healthcare, health tech. But there are some unique aspects, obviously, of health tech that sort of compound the problem. And that is some obvious things like science just takes time. Yeah. Right? And, and the time from when you can observe a behavior in molecules or structures of proteins or elements of the gene, the time from when there can be a scientific breakthrough of understanding to the time you can turn it into something that is practical to the time that it takes to turn it into something that is commercial to the time that it takes to get approval for using it to the time that it takes to convince people to change their ways and adopt it and use it. But you've got all of these compounding problems in terms of the time frame that as an investor, you've just got to be hyper aware of before you jump into these things. But almost always, eh, there's an inclination for us as investors to, I wouldn't say, it's not that we jump in too early. It's that when we jump in, we are excessively optimistic about what it's going to take in terms of time and money to get to where we want it to go. So That's something that I try to curb my enthusiasm when I can. (laughs) We all, we, it's the nature of who we are. And it's particularly the nature, I think, of venture capital investors that we are almost by definition pathologically optimistic and enthusiastic. Sure. Sure. 
So if we were purely objective and analytical, we would be Wall Street investors. We wouldn't be startup company investors. Sure. Right? So that's a bit of a challenge for us. But so you, you made an interesting point right now, optimistic and, and entrepreneurial slash. But, there's, but to be an investor, there's a level of, you have to have a, a realistic outlook as well. So pure optimism is what entrepreneurs are notoriously known for. So how do you distinguish the optimism that an investor has versus an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. I, I, obviously, it's a matter of degree. Uh, fair point. Entrepreneurs are truly pathologically optimistic. <laughs> you have to be crazy to think you can make a dent in the universe, right? And uh, having been an entrepreneur in my earlier life, and I, to some extent, I do think that Pegasus is an entrepreneurial endeavor as well. It's a kind of new model of venture capital. But so I continue to be an entrepreneur, but I'm hyper aware of this challenge that entrepreneurs have. And so as an investor, part of my job is to try to moderate as much as I can sure. the dangerous optimism of an entrepreneur <laughs> while supporting the positive enthusiasm of the entrepreneur. But at the end of the day, to be a venture capital investor, you have to be optimistic, knowing that a significant percentage of your investments are not going to play out. But I follow the dictum that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Sure, sure. If you don't take the shot, you're never going to get a win. And so as long as you go in with your eyes open, that a lot of these investments are not going to play out the way you hope. But you hope that at a minimum, you learn a lot about the domain, the science, the technology, the market, such that because these markets, these problems aren't going to go away. These markets are not going to go away. These opportunities are not going to go away. So that maybe it's your next, it's your next investment that turns out to be the winner. You go into knowing more, being smarter, being more objective about things. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, Bill, you gave us you gave us a little bit of context about your background when I asked you about how you got into healthcare. I was wondering if you could give our listeners a more kind of comprehensive background story. So your story is pretty fascinating. You started as a management consultant, you became an operator, and now you're leading Silicon Valley, one of Silicon Valley's tier one venture funds. Wondering if you could walk us through the Bill Reichert story. Yeah. At some level, I have to admit that it's not a great word, but I've always been something of a dilettante in the sense that <laughs> I have always been just fascinated by lots and lots of different things. So that's that generates a real focus problem. But I've been very fortunate and I accidentally landed at McKinsey and Company right out of college, which is like totally plays to that mindset. We talked about the joke inside McKinsey was that we associates, we were, our job was to become 90 hour wonders, that you had 90 hours, you had 90 hours to become one of the smartest people on the planet on any given domain. That, is that right? Okay. Of, that's the McKinsey trick. All right. Not the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell. No, no, you got 90 hours and generally it's going to be over the weekend, right? Ah, Which is a challenge because literally 48 hours over the weekend. But right. So you walk in, you're a 20 something, you walk into the boardroom of a Fortune 50 company and you better know pretty much everything that's going on. 
So it's an, it was an incredibly powerful discipline to go through that process. After which it was actually after that, that I went to, I came up here to Stanford to go to business school, thinking that I actually, at the time, I thought I was going to, another side of my brain, go into public policy, go back to either DC or New York, whatever. I did wind up doing a stint on Wall Street, but that was after I started a software company. But I realized I, that Silicon Valley was so much more interesting than New York City. Sure. And so I, that's what got me stuck here was being an entrepreneur. And I wound up actually, the company I started in business school took off like a rocket ship. And so I thought, okay, I can go do some other stuff while that thing was soaring. And then one day I got a phone call and found out that it crashed and burned. <laughs> but, and I tried to came back to, to see what I could do. But the great thing about Silicon Valley is when you crash and burn, you can pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you sure. spin the story a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And you get to go do it again. And that's pretty much unlike any other business culture on the planet. And so I got to do it again. And then my second company, we wound up taking public. So I thought I knew there was every, I thought I knew everything I needed to know about entrepreneurship at that point. <laughs> and then, so I jumped into my, this third company, was, uh, the, my third company, we ran it into a brick wall at 500 miles. <laughs> so I got a little bit of humility. I know my wife may not agree with this, but <laughs> I got a little bit of humility. I did it again, took that company public and then decided, okay, let's try something new. And that's what got me. I got a, a call from a friend who uh, said, hey, Bill, how'd you like to start a venture capital firm? That's where, and that was it. That's how we got, that's how we launched Garage. And just being a VC is, it's perfect for my level of interest, which is to say, I get every day, I get to learn stuff that is just, I find fascinating. Not everybody finds it fascinating, but I get to learn what an oligosaccharide is, right? <laughs> Did you know what an oligo oligosaccharide was before? You know, sure. <laughs> but it turns out it's one of the critical molecules in breast milk. And it's really important for baby nutrition, right? So that's the kind of thing I love is understanding the connection between the science, the technology, the human benefit, the outcome, and ultimately then the business. Very cool. A student of life, truly. That's, yeah, it, there, there's definitely a steep learning curve in this industry. At some point in your career, you also wrote a book, which evidently was published Somewhat recently, according to Amazon, it's called Getting to Wow, Silicon Valley Pitch Secrets for Entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write that book and what are some of the, the takeaways? Yeah, thank you. This is the advertising portion of the program. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Oh, yes, please yeah, buy a copy. I'll send you the URL <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> so when I crossed over as I became a VC, again, most entrepreneurs think that this venture capital world is this opaque, mysterious esoteric world where you've got all of these masters of the universe who somehow they've got an algorithm in the back of their head and they listen to all these startup pitches and they process them through their brains and they've got, they calculate an internal rate of return and they make these brilliant investments, right? And so I thought when I crossed over, we got funded by Sequoia and Mayfield and Draper Fisher Jorvidson and a number of venture firms funded Garage sure. to be the farm team for Sand Hill Road. And so now I've got all these new VC buddies, right? And I go talk to them to find out the secret of being a good VC. 
And what I found out was, listen, now that I'm on the inside, tell me, what's the algorithm? And they would tell me things that just did not make sense to me, based upon my brief experience at McKinsey and Company and Wall Street. I'd hear things like, oh, yeah, we invest in teams, right? Mm -hmm. I'd say, okay, fine. That's good. That's great. What are the analytics around assessing a team? And they would say things like, that's pattern recognition. You'll figure it out after five or 10 years. (laughs) Are you, this is venture capital? (laughs) That's interesting. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how do VCs make investment decisions? And one of the things we were experiencing at Garage was we were the first venture capital firm to allow entrepreneurs to pitch us over the internet. And believe it or not, when we started at Garage, Sand Hill Road was still taking FedEx packages with business plans. (laughs) And we said, this is crazy. We've got this internet. Why don't we digitize the whole process? We thought we'd get all of this data in. We got We did. We got over 100,000 business plans in the first three years of Garage. It was overwhelming. And so one of the problems we had is how do good VCs filter entrepreneur pitches? How do good VCs filter entrepreneur pitches? So I spent a lot of time watching my peers in terms of how is this process work? And lots of people, they got, but I had this epiphany And I realized that what was really going on was that VCs don't invest with their brains. Believe it or not. This was scary. I know this is scary. (laughs) VCs don't invest with their brains. This is the secret that entrepreneurs don't appreciate. That VCs don't invest with their brains. They invest with their hearts. Normally, I'll get, when I do a workshop with a bunch of entrepreneurs, I almost always get an entrepreneur who raises her hand and says, wait a second, Bill. I didn't think VCs had a heart. Uh, I'm sorry. But the point, I'm sorry, the point of that was too much. The point of the story is there's so much noise out there, right? There's a ton of science out there. There's a ton of technology out there. There are a ton of business. There's all this noise out there. How do you separate yourself from all of the noise? So you've got to come up with something that is clear such that we actually understand it and is compelling such that it makes our heart beat faster. You've got to come up as an entrepreneur. We're filtering through so much stuff and and it's so overwhelming. You've got to figure out how to stand out from the pack. And the way you stand out from the pack is to be able to deliver something in 20 seconds or 40 words or less. Deliver something. The elevator pitch. No, it's not the elevator pitch. It's not the elevator pitch, okay? That's what I'm, so that's what I fought against was instead the elevator pitch. And I discovered, no, it's not the elevator pitch. It's the 15 or 20 seconds that makes someone listening to you say, wow, that's amazing. You can do that. And if you look at all of the, if you look at all of the, so this was my problem was I was looking at all the elevator pitch template stuff that's out there, and pretty much every elevator pitch template is predicated on trying to jam a 20-minute pitch into 60 seconds, right? And so we get these elevator pitches where product, technology, market, competition, business model, financials, ask, right? Boom, 60 seconds. No, that's not right. You've got to say, this is what we're doing, And we deliver 10x what anybody else can deliver. And that's what gets them to say, wow, 
right? That's, if you can get, deliver 10 times. And so we get all these science in, in, in the biotech healthcare space. We get, everybody says it's a $3.7 trillion industry. And so since the industry is so big, how could we not succeed? That's crazy, right? So what we look for is someone who can say, we reduce mortality by a factor of 3x. Whoa. Or we cut payer costs by 50%. Boom. Just give us the compelling value proposition, and then we can drill into how you do it. But don't spend all of your time describing your business and just trying to educate us on your business plan. Give us the punchline. The punchline is the compelling value proposition. So that's that's the core of the book. And then there's another 283 pages. Very interesting. That's It really boils down to the unique selling proposition. What is your USP? Exactly. Very exactly. cool. Very yeah. cool. What's interesting, so before I, I took this role at Natera Ventures, I, Dirk Schapler told me I was going to be working with you through Pegasus. And we're obviously super jazzed about the partnership with Pegasus. You have helped really Natera drive its innovation strategy significantly. So we've really appreciated the work. And candidly, just the education around venture capital that you've provided the group over the last two years. But before I took the role, did some homework on you and I watched... I found this YouTube video that has so many views, it's so many views about the top 10 lies VCs tell entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> listen to it. I'm like, wait a minute. I've heard every single one of those probably in the same pitch. <laughs> so I guess the question I have to ask you is how do you, as a venture capitalist, how do you poke holes in the lies? How do you, and then what sort of advice do you give entrepreneurs about that particular thing? Yeah. The video you're referring to was a workshop I did at Stanford. And there were actually two presentations. One was the top 10 lies of entrepreneurs, and the other was the top 10 lies of VCs. Ah, okay. So, Let's see that one. Okay. So, yeah. So we actually, yeah. It's very um, balanced. Very so balanced. After about 10,000 pitches at Garage, we it started become almost like buzzword bingo. And we would hear entrepreneurs repeating these we call them lies there, but they're exaggerations, right? Yes. Not yes. intentional lies, but they are exaggerations. And we, this is a long time ago when we wrote this up and it's still true today. The most, they're way more than top 10 lies, by the way, but <laughs> but the top 10 kind of remain there. But the lie number one is our quote unquote, and our projections are conservative. So <laughs> we hear that all the time. And I can count, I can count on one hand, the number of successful entrepreneurs that actually hit their initial numbers. And that's a successful, right? <laughs> no, entrepreneurs never get the numbers right. Rarely, sometimes they do, but, but it's super, super rare. But every entrepreneur wants to believe that their projections are con conservative. When there's the other one that drives me nuts is, and we have the first mover advantage. And what you learn if you've been in tech at all, you what was the first mover has a substantial disadvantage. Sure. And I just, I can't believe that to this day, educated entrepreneurs say, and we have the first mover advantage. Yep. Look at my space and Facebook, right? And it's a perfect. <laughs> name a company, name a successful company that was the first mover. Think about it. There are a few, there are a few. Intel was a first mover. God bless them. 
But it was not easy. It was not, not easy. easy. It was really hard. But it's hard to go back in history and identify the first movers, right? Who invented the computer? Where's that company? Who, invent micro who invented the VCR? Who invented social media? Who invented the smartphone? None of those companies are still around. So first mover is not where you want to be. You want to yeah. be a follower, obviously. But, and so what, and we try, and a part of what I've wanted to do ever since I became a VC was do as much outreach as I could possibly do to entrepreneurs. And that was, and so it took me a long time to turn getting to wow into a book. It was a workshop we started doing early on in the garage days. And yeah, boy, wow, whatever. 15 years later, an entrepreneur came to me and said, hey, Bill, would it be okay with you if I turn your Getting to Wow workshop into a book? And I said, sure, fine, go ahead, whatever. <laughs> and God bless her. And it was so about a year later, she comes back to me with a deck of about 250 slides and says, oh. okay, so here it is. Will you help me edit it? <laughs> Another two years later, finally, we put out, we put it out as a book, Getting to Wow, Silicon Valley Pitch Secrets for Entrepreneurs. And that was thanks to my dear friend, Angelica Blenstrup. But I'll tell you, if you've ever wanted to write a book, the secret to writing a book is to have a co-author who yeah. will twist your arm and, <laughs> and keep pushing you and kick your butt. And in the most wonderful way possible, that was what Angelica did for me. But yeah, so I've always tried to be as outreach and educational oriented as I could be. Pegasus is this great global platform that enabled us to start this thing we call the Startup World Club, the Startup World Cup global competition. So it's now one of the biggest and richest competitions on the planet for startups. And we take any and all startups, biotech, healthcare, as well as IT, as well as material science, whatever. Uh, and we run competitions in over 50 cities around the world, bring the winners back to Silicon Valley to compete for a $1 million grand prize. And so that is enormously energizing for us. Sure. And what we're trying to do is energize entrepreneur ecosystems all over the planet and in the course of all that, build out our network of relationships globally so that we are plugged in across the world so that as technologies emerge, we can get visibility into them as early as possible. The, my, inst my inclination to want to do outreach to entrepreneurs has a very sort of symbiotic aspect with the Pegasus model and sure. with the whole idea of being an investor. Yeah, no, love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Bill. Look, I really appreciate your time. I think we've been honored to, to have you on the podcast. Before before we let you go here, what's your call to action to our listeners and wh where can they follow you and your work? Yeah, the call to action, the call to action to the listeners is, boy, there are so many aspects of healthcare, health tech that represent opportunities to create tremendous value, whether it's in the deep science end of the spectrum in terms of biotech genomics and therapeutics or in the sensor space in terms of devices and remote patient monitoring or in the business model space in terms of trying to push care out to the edge to improve the economics of healthcare 
by enabling care where the patient is rather than building, bringing them into brick and mortar. There's so many opportunities that have now been enabled by advances in technology, advances in science. Please, everyone out there, explore these opportunities to build sustainable, profitable, scalable businesses that can make a dent in the healthcare, health tech world. So that's presumably, that's the core of, Tom, your work, the work at Natera and the idea of this podcast. Anybody who wants to follow me, you, I, I try to post on LinkedIn when I've, I've done articles and books, when we do workshops, when we do Startup World Cup. Follow me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Follow Pegasus, follow Natera, and would love to see any entrepreneurs who are out there who are interested early stage apply to pitch at Startup World Cup at a regional competition near you. There's got to be something near you. And so go to Startup World Cup and look for a regional competition near you. I'm getting on a plane this weekend to go to Luxembourg. We're going to do a Startup World Cup in Luxembourg. And then I go from Luxembourg to Italy. We're doing a Startup World Cup in Italy. And then come back here, August 3rd, we're doing the Startup World Cup regional competition here in Silicon Valley. Check it out and would love to see some of your listeners live in person at a Startup World Cup near you. Absolutely. No, wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. And a lot going on at Pegasus Tech Ventures. Really appreciate your time. For all you listeners out there, I'm Tom Clues, interviewing the, the great Bill Reichert. Thanks for joining us on Health Tech Invest where we promote great people, great entrepreneurs, and spark innovation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Invest podcast powered by Natera Ventures, your go-to source for healthcare and tech venture investing. For additional information, resources, and ways to connect with us, please visit nateraventures.com. Together, let's spark innovation for the future of tech and healthcare investing.